bad fruit usually results in bad feelings. Uh, you know that feeling of disgust when you bite into a shiny on the outside apple and all you get is a mouthful of that brown, flowery, rotten stuff. Uh, the annoyance of opening a punnet of strawberries at home only to discover that half of them, the half that you couldn't see very clearly when they were sealed up in the supermarket, that half is all soft and mouldy. The disappointment of cutting open a rock melon that you thought smelt okay, but when you actually cut it, it's overripe and sickly and nothing much good ever comes from bad fruit. And friends, to today's Bible passage, Isaiah taps into those feelings of disgust and annoyance and disappointment so as to make the simple point that that is how God feels about sin. Put simply, God, God gets really angry over sin, which is not a particularly happy or popular thought, I know, in our politically correct world. The idea of get, God getting angry about anything is sort of frowned upon. But if this morning's section in Isaiah teaches us anything, it is that God is truly incensed by sin. And that is a very helpful lesson to bear in mind. Now, Isaiah chapter 5 shows us all this by means of a song, uh, the words of which we've just heard read to us. Let me remind you of what some of the words are. Verse 1, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Now, the song opens with quite an intimate feel to it, doesn't it? Boldly intimate, really. Uh, Isaiah there is referring to God as the one I love. He's referring to God as my beloved. It's a reflection of how deeply he feels about God. The fact that he's now breaking into a song, it's not a cheap literary device just to get their attention. Love is an important aspect of who Isaiah is. He's passionate about what this chapter is about, and so he puts it into a song because it's just something about a song that does sort of tap into emotions. Isaiah is emotional about God. He's emotional about what sin does to God. And back in the song, it very quickly focuses on a vineyard that his loved one owns, a vineyard that has been spared no expense. Verse 1 again, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. This is a vineyard which from its very beginnings, right from scratch, this has been lavished with care. Its position, not just anywhere, but on a fertile hillside. Its soil is diligently worked over. Protective walls are placed around it. The best vines are sourced out and planted. And so you would be thinking, given all of that, that this vineyard is going to produce a terrific crop. And yet, verse 2, Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Here is the main point of the song. Okay, A vineyard that has been spared nothing has given back nothing. And so in disgust and frustration and grief and all those sort of feelings that come from bad fruit, the vineyard owner abandons the vineyard to the elements and moves on. And the song even invites the people of Judah who would have been listening to this to see the reasonableness of that decision. 
Who could blame the guy for doing that? Verse 3, now you dwellers in Jerusalem and Mount of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could, I, could have been done for my vineyard that I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it'll be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it'll be trampled. It will become a wasteland. Okay, pretty clear about the song. It's fairly straightforward. A vineyard which has had nothing spared on it produces only bad fruit and so its owner abandons. Now, friends, even at this point, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that there's probably a lesson lurking here somewhere for Israel. But just in case his listeners haven't twigged to it yet, Isaiah spells it right out for the dummies. And after a six-verse song... What now happens in the chapter is that he spends the next 24 chapters, uh, 24 verses, explaining bit by bit what each of the different elements in the song are about. And firstly, up front, he wants to tell them what the vineyard is. Verse 7 The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are uh, the garden of his delight. He looked for justice, he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, he heard cries of distress. Okay, this is the kicker of the whole chapter now. That if you haven't already guessed, God's vineyard is Israel and Judah. And as such, the song has been spot on. Because remember, Israel and Judah are the ones who from scratch God has lavished with care and every protection. Israel and Judah, they're the corporate names of the descendants of Abraham. And ever since Genesis, God's been bending over backwards for them. Remember, he saved them from slavery in Egypt. He nursed them lovingly through the wilderness. He led them into the promised land, which he gave to them on a plate. They really have been a vineyard on which God has spared no expense, no effort. And yet all through the Old Testament, they have just been pushing God away. All God wants to do is bless them, and yet all they seem to do is want to rebel against God. All they seem to want to do is sin. So much so that now by the time of Isaiah, here in verse 7, God says that he looks for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but hears cries of distress. They are truly a vineyard who has produced nothing but bad fruit. And if verse 7 isn't clear enough about how bad their fruit is, from verse 8 on now, Isaiah goes on to list off in very specific ways exactly what some of their bad fruit is. Six times from now, from verse 8 on, Isaiah says, Woe to you who, woe to those who, woe to those who. And in each time he says woe, he's actually numbering off Another particular piece of bad fruit. Bad fruit like greed and materialism. Look at verse 8. Woe to you who had house to house and joined field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Greedy people in big houses. God is disgusted by them. Another way follows in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no respect for the deeds of the Lord. 
no respect for the work of his hands. People who run from party to party and are so fixated by the pleasures of the moment that they don't give God a second thought. And God is disgusted by them. Verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. Skeptics and cynics who are so full of themselves that they mock God and question his works. And God is disgusted by them. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Fools who justify their own evil behaviour with sophisticated arguments which only redefine what's right and wrong. God is disgusted by them. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Smug people who say how enlightened they are and how they've moved on from believing in God and all that baby sort of stuff. God is disgusted by them. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. Self-absorbed people who are more interested in what vintage the Chardonnay is than whether justice is being done. People who pay for boozy business lunches with profits from bribery and corruption and God is disgusted by them. I'm telling you, the bad fruit of Israel has a very modern ring to it, doesn't it? It sounds like he could be describing Australia with these six woes. Because here in Australia, we love real estate and we love parties and we love drinking binges and we have virtually no time to reflect on the world because we are simply chasing one pleasure and one comfort after the next. And it's all sin and God's anger burns against it. So much so that in the case of Israel, as we have heard in the song, he's going to destroy the vineyard. And the meaning of that bit of the song is that a very real disaster is about to overtake Judah and Israel. A disaster which is described at various points throughout these six woes where God says every now and then amongst the woes, he says, therefore, this will happen. Therefore, this will happen. Look, for example, at verse 13. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. It's quite a graphic image. The image of Israel being invaded and dragged into exile and the destruction so fierce that it's as if death itself will be insatiable as it stuffs more and more and more people into the grave. Another graphic image happens at verse 25. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the street. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. They are terrifying words. 
for all of this, his anger, the anger of the God of all the universe, for all this, his anger is still not turned away. His hand is still upraised, ready to strike again. Keeps going, verse 26. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Isaiah here is describing how God is going to call down a foreign invader to pour into Israel and deliver his judgment. And it is a stunning picture of God's sovereignty there in verse 26, where he whistles for them to come. Like a master whistling a dog, God whistles. And such is his, or such is his authority and his sovereignty that despite the fact that those other nations wouldn't even acknowledge it themselves, the great superpowers of the time come running at his bidding. And they are relentless and fierce as they come. Verse 27. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles, not one slumbers or sleeps, not a belt is loosened at the waist, not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp or their bows are strung, their horses' hooves seem like flint, their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion, they roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and they carry it off with no one to rescue. This invading army is sort of almost given superhuman characteristics and it creates a terrifying picture of unrelenting destruction as the God of all the universe rages against Israel and they have no one to blame but themselves because of their bad fruit. I don't know about you, but this makes me very glad that I'm not an Israelite at the time of Isaiah because that's the thing, isn't it? Um, We're not. You and I are not looking down the barrel of being handed over to an invading army. We are not Israel. And there is a world of difference between Old Testament Israel and us. So what do we do with a chapter like this? What about this song and us? Where do we fit into the mix? Well, at this point, it's worth stepping back and recalling what we have already seen in Isaiah. Because if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll appreciate that ever since chapter 1, we've been reading about God's big plan for the world. And it's a very ambitious plan to transform the world by punishing the sinner and purifying the repentant. And last week, remember, Isaiah actually jumped forward into history to show Judah the end product of it all. Last week, we got to see how God's big plan fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We got to see what that plan produces in both the last days, which we're actually in now, but also what God's plan will produce on that end day, that final climactic day. Now, this week, God is now showing Judah what the next step will be within that grand plan. Having shown them the end product last week, He's now sort of come back to the present to show them what the next immediate step in the plan is. And it's a sad, tragic step because it's a step in which Israel are going to be punished rightly for her sins. But friends, for us, this side of the cross, there is value in seeing that this is just the next step in the plan. It's not the final step. Okay, Judgment and punishment are not God's last words 
within his grand plan. Within God's grand plan, grace and mercy and forgiveness are his last words. And history shows that to be the case because everything that we've just read about in this song came true for Judah and Israel. At the hands of the Assyrians and at the hands of the Babylonians, Judah and Israel were devastated. But in God's perfect timing, after all of that, Jesus Christ stepped foot into Judah. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, God's offer to wash sins as white as snow was sent throughout all the earth and is still reverberating through all the earth, giving peoples of all nations opportunity for refreshment and cleansing. As at the cross, the punishment that we deserve for all the sins that we've just read about this morning, the greed, the self-indulgence, the arrogance, the punishment we deserve for being rebels and sinners, as has been described in this chapter, that punishment was unloaded in full onto Jesus instead of unto us, which is extraordinary. And parts of the Bible, like this morning's, point forward to that wonderful truth. Because chapters like Isaiah chapter 5, they take us into a particular moment in the outworking of God's plan for all the earth. A really disappointing moment within Israel's history. A moment when their wickedness had really stirred the anger of God. And what it does is it serves to point us forward to the end of God's plan. A time when God would satisfy that anger against sin in a most extraordinary way. The time when God's own son would come and take it on himself. And so parts of the Old Testament like this, as dark and as tragic as they are, they really ought to lift our spirits to again rejoice in Jesus, to be thankful for Jesus Christ, to be thankful that because of him, we will not hear the terrifying words of verse 25. You know those words about God's anger not being turned away, his hand still being upraised. Friends, because of Jesus, his anger has been turned away. Because of Jesus, uh, his hand has been uh, put down. May we never stop feeling the relief of that. Chapters like this ought to throw us again to rejoice in Jesus and to praise God for what he has done in delivering us from this sort of anger and punishment. And yet, as true as all and as wonderful as all that is, I suspect that the chapter also has another level to it as well. Because as you read a chapter like this in Isaiah about how disgusted God is by sin and how offensive the bad fruit of Israel is, I don't think you can help but be drawn into the ominous pastoral tone of it all and you can't help but think, gosh, I wonder how I compare to all this. I wonder what sort of fruit God might be seeing in my life. Especially so because, as we've already noted, the bad fruits listed off here, materialism, self-indulgence, partying, that's the very air we breathe in Australia. And it's really easy to be sucked into it. I mean, last week, Sue did some spot cleaning of uh, the carpet in our lounge room, and the carpet came up really lovely, except the smell of the carpet cleaner was a shocker. And just about everyone who came into the lounge room would comment about it. 
The weird thing was, though, after I'd been sitting in there for a few minutes, I couldn't smell it anymore. And I'd keep getting a surprise when someone new would come into the room and, and they'd comment about it because I'd just not, I'd stop smelling it. And that can happen with us in sin. We're surrounded by it all the time. We're surrounded by stuff that offends God, but over time we just sort of stop noticing it. And the danger is that we can become increasingly comfortable with things in our lives that God is becoming increasingly disgusted by. And today's passage may be a particularly gloomy one, all about bad fruit and judgment, but it may also be a timely one for us. Because passages like this one challenge each and every one of us to consider whether we might be falling into the trap of treating sin a little too lightly. Because God certainly doesn't. And if we're his people, we don't want to either. Because remember what we heard last week. We are the people who in these last days have been washed as white as snow. We are the people in these last days who have taken our place amongst people streaming to the mountain of the Lord. We are people who want to walk in his ways. And that means taking sin seriously. Maybe there's something you need to realign your life over in the light of a passage like this. Maybe maybe there's a sin going on in your life right now and you're just denying how serious it is. Deal with it. And it may mean giving up some pastimes that you really love doing, but in your heart of hearts you know they're wrong. It may mean starting to give away more money and be deliberately more generous so as to safeguard yourself against the level of materialism, the sort of stuff that Isaiah has mentioned here. It may mean starting to obey the Bible rather than simply read the Bible. It may mean walking away from a friendship or a relationship that actually means quite a lot to you, but you know that it is causing you to justify sin. Friends, this morning's passage reminds us of how disgusted God is by sin. And at one level that throws us onto the wonder of Jesus and what he has done for us. But in so reminding us that God is disgusted by sin, surely we are also reminded that we as his people, it ought to disgust us too. I'll pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Father, may we never be blasé about what your precious son has delivered us from. Father, thank you. And Father, we pray that by your word and by your spirit, you would help us to see our lives and the society in which we live through your eyes. Father, help us to rejoice in the things you rejoice in. Help us to value the things that you value. Help us to be disgusted by the things that disgust you. Amen.